right, everybody. How is everybody doing today? Everybody good? Everybody sleeping today? All right. Raise your hand if you're sleeping. I'm just kidding. Uh, my name is Michael um, Page. If this is your first time here, I just want to welcome you. Uh, we're excited about all God's doing around this place. Um, you know, we're excited to jump into this new year, uh, especially as we're starting this new series going through John. Um, you know, Eric said that I'm skipping over chapter two. I, I have you know that I'm reading the last three verses of chapter two today. Um, so we're going to be in chapter two a little bit. Um, so uh, he lied to you a little bit. But anyway, uh, he'll, he, hopefully he repented during communion and he's all good. So, um, so, the, so what's God, what God's been doing for our church, the Lord's been setting us up for some pretty amazing things right now. It's, it's hard not to get excited, man. Um, connection, uh, construction in, in Rinkin right now is going well. The Lord is building a house right now in Rinkin for this body to go and to be ministers of his word in that community. Our goal um, is to relaunch in, in February. Um, our goal is to see it done by the 12th. We'll see. Construction's kind of, you know, construction's weird, right? And so um, just be praying for that because the Lord is doing a lot of things setting that up for our church. And, um, and I want to challenge you, every heart and soul member, um, every person that's been here um, that's about to go through heart and soul, every person that calls this place home, I want to encourage you to dig in. I want to encourage you to dig in because God has opened a door and he's positioned us to reach a much larger group of people. He's positioned us to reach more people and to do amazing things for his kingdom. And so uh, this move is going to take everybody working together, going after the same mission, moving, uh, moving as one, right? And so for those of you that it's your first time here this morning, you're like, what is this guy talking about? Ask somebody, ask somebody with a blue shirt on. They'll give you the whole scenario and story. Just be prepared to uh, be here till after lunch because it's a great story. So last week, uh, we kicked off our new series called Come and See. It's, a, it's going through the book of John. Um, not an exegetical uh, survey. It's more of a survey of the book of John uh, where we're looking at instances in the Bible where Jesus came into contact with someone and they, their eyes were open to see who Jesus was. Um, because we believe as a church, as Christians, people who follow Jesus, that there's something that's special that happens whenever a person meets Christ. His eyes are open, his or her eyes are open, and you see Jesus for who he truly is, right? There's something special that happens in that moment. And our goal was to see that happen. And, you know, you may be here this morning, you know, I've, been a, I've been saved for 20 years. I'm, I'm, I'm good, right? No, my heart today is that you would see this with fresh eyes. We're going to be at the end of chapter 2 and then the beginning part of John 3. Everybody knows John 3, 16, right? So my heart is today we would read this scripture with a brand new pair of eyes. And we would see what Jesus is trying to show us through this passage because he's trying to show us something no matter how old you are spiritually. And so last week we started this series by looking at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, where King Solomon was dedicating the temple that was built to house the presence of God as if that could happen fully. And he asked a very intriguing question for, um, the, kind of for this series. He says, 1 Corinthians 8, 27, it says, Will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you much less this temple that I've built. And so as I read that, as I look through those scriptures, my heart today is that we would see that as we look at the book of John, what a great question to ask because all through the Old Testament, the tabernacle and then later the temple became these focal points for God's presence on earth, for God's people to look to, to go to seek God in, to seek his forgiveness, to, to seek his presence. But then when we get to the New Testament and we get to, to John 1 even, and last week we saw that in the person of Jesus, we find that God truly did dwell on earth, right? In Jesus. And our heart today is that we would live off of that verse in John 1, 14, where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
it literally means he tabernacled. He came and pitched a tent on earth, and we observe his glory, the glory as the one and the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this morning, my heart is that our eyes will be open to see who he truly is, because and I look at my life sometimes, like Eric was saying, and my life's been more about me sometimes than it is about him and his presence being on earth. My life is more, my decisions are more about me and, and pleasing me and my flesh than it is about living for him some days. And my heart is that we would come to this book humbly and we would let it read us. We would learn to repent. We would learn to love. We would learn to come lay before God and say, God, forgive me. Now pick me up and put me where you want me, Lord. And start living that way with that freedom. And so this morning, I just want to pray for us. Because I, I love this book. I love John because it, it's, it's written with a very deliberate purpose that you and me, us, we could see, we would come and we would see Jesus and not just come and look, not just look, oh, he's beautiful, but come and see it, then believe and then let the weight of our lives rest in his presence. And that's the goal of what we're doing because that's why we named it Come and See, this series. Because we truly believe something special happens when someone comes and sees Jesus for who he truly is. So let me pray and then let's jump in. So, God, we love you. We thank you. I thank you for this body. I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing in our lives, Lord, individually, God, and corporately. God, I pray that you would work, continue to work in us, continue to open our eyes to see you for who you are, God. Don't let us miss it. Father, there's so many distractions around this earth, God, around this world, God, in our lives individually, Lord, no matter what age we are, no matter what circumstances we're in in life, God, there's so many distractions, so many uh, things that we struggle with to keep our eyes focused on you. This morning, I pray that you would refocus our eyes, you would refocus our attention, God, and you would grab our attention. I pray for the person in here this morning that may be stuck in religion, God, that you would open their eyes. I pray for the person that believes they're saved and they're not. I pray that you would make that clear to them this morning, and that they would make a decision to follow you for who you truly are. God, keep us far away from religion and, and, and bring us just deeper into your presence every time we gather. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, cool. So um, as we jump into this second week of Come and See, I was thinking about this, and I, I, I found one of these things uh, in my drawer at home. You know what this is? Anybody know what this is? It's a gospel track. Okay. Um, if you don't know what this is, this used to be a long time ago, and maybe even sometimes today, some circles may still use this, but you'll, you, instead of going and creating a relationship with someone and sharing the gospel with them, you hand them this and you walk away, right? Hopefully, hopefully they read it. I've seen them in bathroom stalls just laying there and you know, it's some good reading for some bathroom time, right? You know, and so it even, it has all these things. The first thing says, you know, may I ask you a question? This is the first one. Then it goes in and talks about all these things about, you know, have you ever taken, have you ever taken a Bible and, and, and shown you, has anybody ever taken you, taken a Bible and shown you how you can get to heaven, basically? And it goes all the way through this process and, and it lays out the gospel. Usually it's great. The gospel is clear, but usually in a very ominous way. Sometimes they have like cartoons some some of them have like a, you know, like a comic strip in them. Other people, I've seen one before. There was a a story when a buddy of mine in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Albany who was doing, uh, you know, Facing the Giants and Fireproof, he said Kirk Cameron was in that movie, right? And he was living over in Albany and he was filming the movie and, um, you know, he had all these gospel tracks. We had the million dollar bill gospel tracks, you know, everybody's seen those? And he had them all over his room. And the church sent people to his house to clean his house and the lady who was cleaning the house comes back to the pastor and says, I can't go in that house. There's like $100 bills laying everywhere. And so, I, and so basically, there was all types of these gospel tracts. And so basically, at the very end, it gives like a line-by-line line prayer to pray. And then when you're done praying, you're saved, right? 
And so, and I'm not knocking this, but, I, but what, I'm, what I'm showing you, though, is at the very end, what you see is after you're, after you're saved according to this little track, at the very end, it gives you all these things that you should do now that you're saved. Right? And so what happens is things like this. Barna did a study in 2016. It said 53% of America said they've prayed a prayer of salvation, something like that that's found in there. If you pray this prayer, you'll get saved, right? And they believe they're going to heaven because they've been told that by a gospel track or someone said, hey, pray this prayer, then you're saved, right? What if I told you this morning that there's not a prayer in the Bible that says, hey, pray this prayer and you're going to get saved, right? What if I told you in the Bible, there's nothing in the Bible that says, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and you'll be saved, right? You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's just some of the languages that we've created, but half of this 53% have no regular investment in the church. They have about, about the same number think the Bible is wrong about some of the things that it teaches. About that same number believe, or excuse me, about two-thirds of those people have lifestyles that are no different from the people outside the Christian faith. And so for the rest of their lives, these people, when they hear the gospel, when they hear Jesus, when they hear about sin and the need to be saved, what happens? They say, this is the gospel, come to Christ turn from your sin, repent, live a life of repentance, live a life of joy and freedom. They're like, I'm good. I'm saved. I I prayed the prayer. I've done the things. I've I've checked the boxes. I've served at the church. I go to connect. But do all the things, right? But what I want to show you this morning as we look at John chapter 2 and 3 is that the Bible speaks frequently about a kind of faith that's superficial. Anybody know what superficial means? It means it has the appearance of being real, but it's fake. Who knows that in the American southeastern area of the country, there's a lot of superficial faith happening. A lot of people say, I'm Christian. Why? Well, because my Facebook says I'm Christian. Right? I'm a Christian because I go to church. I I was raised in the church. My grandma had me in church when I was seven days old. That doesn't save you, bro. Right? My heart is that we would see this morning, it goes, there's a faith that doesn't go very deep, and there's a type of faith that doesn't save and I want to show you, before you, get, before you start trying to tar and feather me for saying that, I'm going to show you in Scripture, okay? But the tragedy is that for a lot of people, th- this superficial faith, their superficial faith has sort of immunized them from understanding their need for the gospel, right? It's kind of, it's kind of gotten this, everybody knows what, what vaccines are, right? We've gone through that, okay? Um, we're not having that debate today. But, you know, but most of you don't, may not know the definition of immunization. Basically what happens is when you get a vaccine or an immunization, they inject you with a little bit of the disease so that your body develops antibodies so that if you're ever exposed to the real thing, you have a resistance that's built up to it, right? And so that's what's happened with these people. They never get infected with the real gospel because they've been immunized by a superficial religion. So the gospel can't take effect in that person's life because there's like a guard around it right? And so they often, they, they often can't believe in Jesus because they don't see the need to come to Jesus. And that's terrifying for me as I think about this because, oh, I've been saved. I'm good. My, 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 my buddy at work gave me this track and I prayed a prayer and now I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And the, 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 this is the condition that sometimes we call cultural Christianity. Anybody ever heard of that? Cultural Christianity. I'm a Christian because I grew up in Rinkin or I grew up in Savannah or I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm a Christian because I went to church since I was this age, and I've prayed the prayer, done the things. And the reason this has happened is because the gospel is so often presented as a costless addition to a person's life. Right? Get saved, your life will get better. Right? 
Whose life's got better since you got saved? I, there might be a few of you, but not all of you. I would say the majority of you probably not because it's, it, it, the Bible says you will be persecuted, right? But the gospel, the kind of cultural Christian gospel that we preach, this American gospel, it says, you know, just add church attendance to your hobbies, add giving to your list of good deeds, or add a cross to the trophies on your mantle. And that's not what the gospel is. And this is how many people go through the motions of accepting Jesus, as if that's in the Bible, right? With accompanying surrender to his lordship. There's, there's no accompaniment to surrender. In the American culture, surrender is a bad word. I'm going to submit. I start talking about submission in here. People are like, nah, turn the ears off, right? Submission to your husband or your wife. I don't want to hear that. Submission or surrender to the Lord of, of all creation. I want to hear that. I, I, I just want to add him to my life, right? My life started good. I just want to add him a little bit here. But receiving Christ, hear this, receiving Christ, being saved, is far more than a mental acknowledgement of truth. And for the, most of you this morning, I pray that you understand this is a very this is a this is a passage of scripture that's been taught to you. If you've been if you've been in a church for a long period of time, you've heard this a million times. And my heart today is that you would just turn that off and hear this with fresh ears, John three and, and John two, because receiving Christ is far more than a mental acknowledgement of truth. Because what does what does James two nineteen say? It says you believe well, even the demons believe and they and they tremble. So the demons believe to a point of an emotional response, right? The demons are like, you know, and one thing I know is that I look in Scripture, I don't ever see a demon blaspheme the name of Jesus because there is a respect. There's a fear and a hatred, but there's a respect for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My heart this morning is that we would understand that just because I believe there's a God, I believe there's a Jesus, I believe he came and died, doesn't mean I'm saved. The word belief has been manipulated in our culture for a very long time. And we're going to talk about that today. Okay, so after looking at John 1 last week, that Jesus is the God, God in flesh, right? God in flesh, he's the, the creator, the light, the life. Everybody remember this, right? Today's topic in John 2 and 3 is going to show us what it takes to come and see Jesus for who he is and then believe. What it's going to take. And so believing um, is more, is a, is a major theme in the gospel of John. It's used 99 times in his book. 99, believe. Well, does that, mean, does that mean I believe the pastor's wearing a blue shirt? Does that mean I believe that the sky is blue? I believe that water's wet, right? Is that, is that what that means? No, oh, John 20, verse 31, at the very end of his book, John's going to say, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in verses like this, and in verses like John 3, 16, that we're going to read today, it's important that we understand what the word believe means, right? And so as I read this and I started studying this word believe in the Greek that this word is written, written in, it's pistuo. It's, it's a word, it's, it's to entrust or believe or, or to be faithful, to believe to be faithful. I think it, it'll be on the... There, here it means to, to entrust or believe to be faithful. Do I believe Jesus is faithful? Do I rely on him? Do I rest in him? Right? So that's what it means in its original text. And as I thought about this, I've I've shared the gospel. This I used to be a youth pastor back in the day. I used to share the gospel a little bit differently with, with those guys because they were younger, right? And so I started thinking about what it looks like to, to believe in Jesus. He, you know, for the John 3:16 says, For you know, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
What does the word believe mean? Well, I, 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 many of you guys who are super Christians in here may have seen this. Those of you who haven't, just act like you're impressed. Okay, so basically what's happened in the world is we take believe and we're like, oh, believe, believe. Oh, I believe this chair is black. I believe it looks sturdy. I believe it's pretty, pretty good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty heavy guy. I believe, I, I believe it'll hold me. I believe it'll hold me up, right? Well, I mean, that's the type of faith that America teaches you. That's not saving faith. It's not saving faith until I say, this is a great chair. This chair is, is, is pretty sturdy. I think it'll hold me, so I'm going to sit in the chair. This is saving faith, right? When I rest the weight of my life and my eternity on the weight of this chair or, or the gospel. You see what I'm saying? Do you see the difference? There's a difference in me saying, I believe this chair will do it. I believe this. I know this. The demons believe that, right? But it's not until I rest in that chair that I know actional faith is what we're looking for, right? And so let's jump into John chapter 2, verse 23 this morning. Uh, and so we're going to look at the first three or four verses, or last three or four verses of chapter 2, and then we're going to jump into chapter 3. And so let's look at this. And so it says, while he was, he is Jesus, while he is in Jerusalem during the Passover, the, excuse me, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name. Let's stop there for a second before we move on. Because in the church world, when you read these words, we get excited, right? Our guest services, oh man, we got new people coming in. Somebody raised their hand. They're, oh, let's get them. Let's get their names. Make sure you fill out a connect card. Get your prize at the door. Make sure we get you in a connect group at Heart and Soul. Make sure if you, are you baptized? You want to get baptized again? Let's do this. It was, we're getting them all in the game, right? We're going to get them in the church game because we get excited, and we, we get excited. This is awesome, but, but it says many believed in his name. What did then the rest of that say? When they saw what? The signs he was doing. So as I read that, I'm like, man, you know, well, so what? So, so what? I would believe if I saw the signs too, right? But there's something deeper here we need to look into. So let's look at Jesus's response. So after in John chapter 2, John chapter 3, and throughout this book, John, at the end of his chapter, sometimes does a little play-by-play. This is what happened. Then let me give you my interpretation of what happened, okay? So this is what, let's, let's, let's look at these, the next two verses. It says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so as I read that, what's interesting is John's choice of grammar. This is sort of a, a play on words in this book, in this passage, because the word believe and the word commit or entrust here are, are essentially the same exact word. So let, let, let me retranslate this for you for the effect of, to, of this play on words. It says, many believed in him, but he did not believe in them. You see that? And so that, that's sort of the intended impact here as, I, as you read this. And so there is a faith short of saving faith. That should, that should create a little bit of holy fear in some of us this morning. Let me tell you, that's healthy. Because what is going to kill you is your comfort. Get out of your comfort zone this morning and let this sit for a second, right? There's a faith short of saving. How many people do you know that would say, oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe. I believe. Well, you know, Jesus has a, has a, Jesus has a statement for that in Matthew 7. 21 and 23, the most terrifying passage of Scripture in the Bible. Here we go. 
PG-13. Not everyone who says to me, what? Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many, that word many in the Bible should terrify you. Many. I could preach a whole sermon on this, but like, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Do miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. What? You lawbreakers? These people were saying, Lord, Lord. They were driving out demons. They were prophesying. They were going to connect group. They were, they were saying yes to their serving request on planning center. They were, they were connect group leaders. They were healing the sick. They were raising the dead. They were casting out demons. They were prophesying the truth of Scripture. And, God, and Jesus calls them lawbreakers. What in the world is happening? There's a faith that's short of saving faith. And the church, the devil has tempted us and tried us and tripped us up to believe that some of us are saved and we're really not saved. That should terrify us. But it should draw us closer to Jesus because he's the, he's the one that saves. David Platt says this. He says, Jesus in this passage in, in Matthew 7 and John 3, he's not talking about irreligious pagans, atheists, or agnostics. He's talking about deeply, devoutly religious people who are deluded into thinking they are saved when they are not. He's talking about men and women who will be shocked one day to find out though they thought they were on the narrow path that leads to heaven, people who believed but were not born again. Born again. One commentator gives these people in John chapter 2 this title. He calls them unsaved believers. And Jesus knew what was in their heart, right? He knew that they weren't truly his followers. So it says he didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't believe in them, right? They were just going along for the ride. Oh, he does miracles. I'm going to this guy. Uh, oh, th this church is doing this now. I'm going over here because this is way more fun. I, oh, this is, they were entertainment driven, right? This, this pastor's laying on hands and healing people. Let me go over here and get entertained by this guy for a little while, right? All these things were, they were along for the ride, right? What did it say in verse 24? Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew them all. Well, what does that mean, knew them all? At Hebrews 4, 13, uh, the best connect group in our church my group is doing, um, is doing a study on Hebrews right now. And so this is, this is actually two weeks away, but we're excited to get there. It says, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What does that say? To whom we what? Must give an account. There's coming a day for some of you, it's sooner than others. You're going to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to give an account for your life. I'm not trying to be ominous in here, but it's scary. The, the, the one who said, let there be light. The one who said, let, it's amazing. To think. So nothing in your life, thought, motivation, deed is hidden from his sight. You may, you, may, you may trick us and we may trick each other. I may put on a mask for you to say, hey, look at me, I'm good. And you may do the same thing for me, but you're not going to do that with Jesus, Right? And this is a sobering verse that says we'll give an account for our lives, for everything. Everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, Jesus has full knowledge of because he knows everything about us. But here's what's amazing about the gospel. He knows everything about you, and he loves you anyway. That's what draws you to Jesus. He knows the dirty things you think or say or do, and he loves you anyway and provides a way back to himself.
That's the beauty of the gospel. When you hear the first part, you go, ah, he knows everything, everything. Yep, he heard it. He saw it. He knows it. But he loves you in despite of it. And the cross proves that to you. Cling to that this morning. Let this wake you up. Let this uncomfortableness wake you up. So chapter 3 is the answer to the question presented in chapter 2. So there's no chapter breaks in the original text of the Bible, right? There's no chapters and verses. I know some of you are like, what, is, what are you talking about? Well, the Bible is written just straight, straight through, right? No chapters, no verses, but we've done some things and divided it up. So it, it's just, it's, it's, it would be read like, for he himself knew what was in a man. There was a man named Nicodemus. And so he brings in a story to kind of a solution to the problem that was raised at the end of chapter two. So if there is a faith, let me show you this. If there is a faith that is short of saving faith, then what kind of faith does save us? We're going to answer that question today, okay? So what we're going to look at is John 3, 1 through 7. So let's look at this together. It says, there was a man named, from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these miracles, excuse me, these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I have told you that you must be born again. So Nicodemus represented the best of Israel. He was a, he was a Pharisee. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, was a religious body that, um, that was responsible for religious and civil rule. Um, why, you know, my question, there's a lot of question around why Nicodemus came at nighttime. Some people say he was scared to make his faith public. Other people say this was the time that the Jews would encourage you to study the Torah is at night with a lamp by yourself. There was nothing else going on. Other people believe that, that Nicodemus was trying to have an uninterrupted conversation whenever everybody was crowding around Jesus in the daytime. It would not have been so at nighttime. We don't know. So we can give a sermon on making your faith public from this verse, but it might not be theologically correct, okay? We don't know. And I'll tell you when we don't know something, because it's a lot, right? So, but look at Nicodemus' word choice. Look at his word choice. He says, what does he say? What is it? He comes to him. The first thing that Nicodemus says is what? Rabbi. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. So the title rabbi and, and teacher, these were like, they, Nicodemus was trying to be complimentary. Like he's trying to be flattering. He's trying to be polite. But this was one of two assumptions being made in this verse. One, he was assuming that him and Jesus were on the same level. He was assuming that I'm a rabbi, Jesus is a rabbi, we got this same thing in common, I need to figure some things out, I'm going, right? But also, what did he say next? He says, we know that you are a teacher that has come from God. Well, the second thing he was assuming was that Jesus was just a teacher that had come from God. He didn't understand that he was God, Right? And so he had it all wrong. Jesus was way more than a teacher that had come from God. He was, he was God. If you look at Matthew 5 through 7, you'll see that he had come to create a new kingdom culture. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's riddled with phrases like, you've heard, but I tell you. You have heard, but I tell you. This is what you know, what you've read, what you've lived. But here's what I've come to do. I've, turned, I've come to turn that on its head, and you're called to live this way. 
right? He's bringing a new culture with him. So Nicodemus, he opens up with this nice introduction we see in the first seven verses. He says, we know that you're a teacher, come from God, blah, blah, blah. And this is funny, right? It's funny because Jesus doesn't even acknowledge his compliment. Like Jesus, he's like, we know that you're a teacher, come from, he says, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. It's like, what the heck? Slow down, slow down, right? But no, man, this is, I love this about Jesus. He goes straight to the point. I love this about him. He doesn't even acknowledge the comment. He, he wasn't interested in small talk. Unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. And I don't think Jesus was sidestepping that. I think what he was doing was showing the urgency of being born again. Around my house, there's been a lot of death recently. There's been people Savannah's worked with, people we've been friends with that have died just randomly. And I'm like, we need to stand aside lock the doors, and just chill for a while, right? Just play it, play it safe, right? You and me, I don't care how young you are, are not promised the next five minutes. And unless you're born again, you're not going to see Jesus on the other side of that. There's an urgency here. What we see Jesus, so Nicodemus, he, he, he believed that his qualification for entering heaven was his Jewish heritage, his physical birth, right? I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm going to heaven. In his mind, all he needed for the kingdom of God to be a reality was his birth. I, I'm, I was born into the covenant, Israel, right? And then Jesus throws this curveball and says, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom, Nicodemus, right? I mean, now that term born again is, has kind of become cliche in our church, in all churches around. Born again, born again, born again. It's kind of a, it's kind of a cliche. We've kind of robbed it of its meaning. I've even heard some people Talk about born again like it's some reserve for some special sect of Christianity, right? Are you one of born again types? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Well, if you look at born again, this will be on the screen. The, the Greek word is, is enothen, enothen, and so it means to be born from above. To be born from above, it literally means to be born from above, to have a, to have a supernatural spiritual transformation which takes a person out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer him into the kingdom of God. Do y'all remember this? Colossians 1 from kingdom culture. Colossians 1.13. What does it say? He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. And what has he done? Transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We just went over this three or four months ago, right? And Nicodemus just couldn't grasp the doctrine of regeneration. I, he just didn't get it. He's like, I, I don't get it, God. Like, and we're going to move on here in a second. We're going to look at what Jesus says to him. But what I want you to know, what I want you to take home with you and to hear this morning is until we realize that we must be born again, we probably won't realize our sinful condition. Right? Until we realize that we need to be born again, we probably won't understand the gravity of our sin and our condition in our sin so we won't try to run to Jesus for our salvation. And so in verse 5, Jesus uses a concept that Nicodemus should have been familiar with and that many churches and denominations have kind of, have kind of skewed or taken out of context, not necessarily meaningfully, but there's, there's, <clears throat> there's three or four different views on verse 5 where, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so some say this water means natural birth. Like whenever you're pregnant, you know, there's, 
There's a moment where your water breaks and then you know the baby's coming, right? And so that's, that's some views of that. Um, but, you know, there's another view speaking of baptism. Some people think baptism, baptismal regeneration is how you're saved. This is the belief that you aren't truly saved until you're baptized in the water. But contextually, here in this moment of Scripture, Jesus is speaking to a Jew who would know nothing about Christian baptism, and he wouldn't for a while. Now, I don't, I don't believe it means baptismal regeneration, because if it did, that's all Jesus would have been talking about, right? And then Paul in the New Testament, he wouldn't have said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He would have said something like, for God sent me to preach the gospel and baptize. And some other people believe that it's a reference to Ephesians 5, where it says you're washed by the word of God. Other people believe it's a reference to John's baptism of repentance. There's so many different types of views. And it's between you and the Holy Spirit where you fall. But I believe Jesus was always strategic. When you read your Bible, you'll see that Jesus never wasted a word. He never wasted a moment. He never wasted a time where he could share the gospel or share, share, what's, share truth. So Nicodemus, he was the teacher of Israel, is what they called him. So Nicodemus would have been an expert in the law, and he would have been an expert in the prophets. At a young age, these guys had to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Can you imagine what it looks like to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Anybody want to do that, right? It's memorize. Yeah, thanks, bro. I need that. I don't know what's going on right now. Thank you so much. But in Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 27, this is what it says. It says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and, you will, bring, and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all the impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. I believe the reason why Jesus was using this verbiage is he was speaking to a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. And in verse 10, he says, are you not a teacher? Are you not the teacher of Israel? Don't you know these things? Because he should have known these things. Jesus well, what he was doing, listen to this, what Jesus was doing is he was holding him accountable to at least have some kind of biblical knowledge of what it means to be born again. You should know this because you know the Bible. You know what it says in the law and the prophets. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, Nicodemus asked. Are you a teacher of Israel? The literal translation is, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. But if I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so as I read this, verse 8, it says, it says, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so this is a, this is a word play that can't be adequately expressed in English. The, the Greek word is pneuma. The Greek word is pneuma. It means wind or spirit. 
breath, wind, spirit. So the work of the spirit, the pneuma, is invisible and it's mysterious. It's like the blowing of the wind. Has anybody ever seen the wind in here? No, the answer is no. If you've never, you've never seen the wind, but you feel the effects of the wind, right? When you're standing in a field and it's a windy day, it's blowing your hair, it's blowing sand in your mouth, right? You've, you've felt the effects of the wind, but you've never seen the wind. Who's ever been able to control the wind in here? Nobody, right? It's the same with the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit, but you can feel the effects of the Spirit. You can't see where He goes and when He comes, but you can feel His presence. For those of you that haven't, maybe it's time to be born again. My heart this morning is that you would see that we can't see the wind, but we see its effects. We may not be able to see the Spirit, but if we're born again, the effects of the Spirit will change your life. You ever been around somebody that says, there's something different about that guy or girl? The Holy Spirit is just on them, in them, working through them. The only thing different than that person and you is submission. That's it. That's literally it. Submission and surrender. And there can be no submission or surrender while we're still saying out of one side of our mouth that we love Jesus and saying out the other side of our mouth that I don't like reading the Bible. It's boring. I don't like spending time in prayer. I don't like spending time serving the church or loving the church. I don't like serving. I don't like being generous. We can't talk out both sides of our mouth because if I'm doing that, I'm quenching the spirit here and expecting the spirit to bless me over here, and that doesn't work. Try doing that in your marriage. Baby, I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm going to hang out with this other girl for a while, but I love you. I love you. I love, I'm going to... What would happen? You'd be dead or divorced, right? Dead or divorced. And so my heart today is that you would see it's time to stop quenching the spirit and give him full reign of your life. The spirit of God undeniably changes people. Who knows someone in this room or in your life that got saved and was a night and day different person after they got saved? few of us, five, six of us. Okay, we're rest of us. We'll have an invitation in a minute. And so what happens is Nicodemus still doesn't get it. How can this be, Jesus? Jesus is like, bro, 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 listen. Are you not the teacher of Israel? You ought to know this. The Old Testament prophets spoke about this in Isaiah 32, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2. The nation's teacher ought to understand this, Nicodemus. They ought to understand how God can give someone a new heart. He ought to understand. And Nicodemus, and he's, and don't get me wrong, Nicodemus is doing a good thing here. He's searching the deeper things of God, right? He's not going after the miracles and all these. He's like, how can this be? He's, he's really trying to dig in with Jesus. He's really, and we know from later in Scripture in John 7 and John 19 that Nicodemus was born again. He was saved, right? So there's some fruit in John that shows that, right? What we see here, though, is, is how can this be? And so Nicodemus is searching these deeper things. And, and Jesus asks the question, right? What does he say? If he can't grasp these basic teachings of regeneration that Jesus is presenting in earthly analogies, how do you think you're going to understand if I start speaking to you in spiritual analogies and teaching you deeper spiritual things? Because you don't even understand this because you haven't put your heart to understand. You haven't surrendered and submitted to the world is bigger than you. 
right? The rest of this chapter gives us a great picture of the gospel and why we need the gospel, sort of like the bottom line. In verse 13, let me read that again. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from earth, the Son of Man. Can I just get real and deep with you just for a second? This is cool. This verse is cool. There's no way that a person can get to God. Do you know that? If tomorrow you got up saying, I'm going to find God. Like the physical manifestation of God. I'm going to find him. I'm going to create a machine that's going to fly me through. Like you ever seen, you ever seen Inception or like, you know, those movies. I'm going to find a way to get through the time-space continuum and get to it. would be a great movie probably. There's no way you can do that because we're confined on earth with walls around us called time and space. You can't get out. All you claustrophobic people, I'm sorry, just got a lot closer in here, didn't it, right? It's called time and space. We live in time and space, a time-space continuum, and you can't overcome that because guess what? You and me, we're a creature of time and space. Who knows that you have a timer clicking, and one day you're going to pass away from this earth. Right? You know that, right? Okay, if you didn't, I'm sorry that you found out today. But it's going to happen. 100% of you will pass away. And you can't overcome that. You live and you die. And there's no way to reach up and touch God. You can't go up into heaven. But the heart of Christianity is that God has come down from heaven, John 1, into the time-space continuum that we live in, became a man of time and space to live among us so that we might have a way out. Isn't that cool? John 13. So, so since we can't escape our box of time and space, the only possible way to be saved to know God, that's the way to be saved. To transcend this time and space continuum is for God to step into our little box. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. God became a man and stepped down into our little box, time, space, continuum. But where we get into trouble is where Nicodemus got into trouble, right? We try to reverse that. We try to reverse that by trying to reach up to God through our actions. That's called religion. God, look how much the Bible I know. Look how much I love my wife. Look how much I do. Look how much I, I give. Look how much I'm nice. I, I'm really nice. Whenever, whenever the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he says, good teacher. What did Jesus say? Who's, who's good? Only God's good. And this little box, there's no good. Only God. My heart today is that you'd see that we all need Jesus, man. But, but where we get in trouble is we try to create religion. And religion is man reaching up to God and trying to get to God and we waste our lives doing that. Christianity is God coming down to our level in the person of Jesus. If you don't understand this, you're not saved. This is foundational to the gospel. Religion is man reaching up. Christianity is God comes down. The beauty of this is guess what you had to do to get this, to make this happen? Guess what you had to do? You had to sin. And guess what? You sin coming to church. Right, and Jesus came to forgive that sin. You didn't do anything to deserve this. You didn't do anything for God to do this. You had no hand in this. It's him that gets the glory, him alone. Him and him alone. Now it gets good. Let's look at verse 14. So just as, if you have your Bible and you're writing your Bible, circle just as. Just as Moses looked up to the snake in the wilderness, so the man 
So the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave the one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. That word believe, remember you have to know what believe means. It means to rely on, to cling to, to hold tightly to. It doesn't mean I believe the chair holds me. It means I'm sitting in the chair. So a lot of you read past verse 14. You're like, what are you talking about with snakes and serpents? And what, what, is that, what does that mean? This sounds kind of cultish, right? Well, if you look in, everybody remembers Numbers 21? No, some of us. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So Numbers 21, mark it, go read it. Numbers 21, the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were being fed manna every morning. Manna literally means in Hebrew, what is it? That these little honey wafers is what it was. God just rained down the manna. You walk outside, oh, there's food. God providing, providential, providence for his people. Providing, what did they do? Kind of like me, I'm tired of eating all this diet food, bro. I need, I need some more variety in my diet. How do we think we are? We think the universe revolves around us. We think that we can change God's plan, God's motives, God's mission, God's gospel. We have to humble ourselves before him and he'll lift us up in due time is what First Peter says. But Numbers 21, the children of Israel were living in disobedience. They were complaining. So what does God do? Remember, this is the Old Testament, judgment. He sends snakes into the camp. All those snakes. Everybody like snakes? Okay, snakes were biting all these people. And thousands of people were just dying, like, dead. And, and Moses is like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, where did, and the people, the people are like not believing what, he's like, you, the, the seas just parted and you came out of Egypt. And now you're going to complain about how he's fit? We're so sinful. So all these snakes were biting these people. Thousands of people died. Moses prays for God, God, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. So God instructed Moses to form a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole and put it in the middle of the camp of Israel. Like, what? That's weird, right? And if anyone who was bitten by a snake look, just looks up at this serpent will be saved and they'll be healed and they won't die. You see the similarities of the gospel and the snake? But to do this now, anybody struggle with pride? Everybody better raise their hand right now. <laughs> Every single person in this room struggles with pride of some sort. Either you think you're awesome or you think you're not awesome. Both of those are forms of pride. My heart today is that you would see, to do what Moses was asking takes two things. You've got to admit that you've got a problem. You've got to admit that you've got a problem. You've got to, you've got to know and you've got to admit that you know that you need help. Moses, I've been bit by a snake. I ain't looking at that snake up there. That looks stupid. I ain't doing that. It's how we treat Jesus sometimes. I got this sin. I, no, nah, Jesus wouldn't accept me. You know, there's a free, free gift of salvation, heaven for eternity. No, nah, I'm going to choose hell. You know, that, that's, that's what we do. We get prideful. The second thing is you have to believe that if you look up at that servant, servant it's going to save you and you'll be cured. So there's two things. You got to let go of your pride. You got to admit that you have a problem. I have a sin problem, God. And then you got to look to Jesus to save you. You see the beauty of that? It seems crazy, but imagine Moses saying, I know you're all dying, but if you just look over here at this serpent that I made, it's pretty bronze. 
you'll be healed. It's so counterintuitive. What are, Moses, what are you talking about? How is this helpful? How does that cure anything? To be saved from your sin, you must believe that you're a sinner. This morning, the reason why some people aren't saved, the reason why they have a superficial faith is because they don't truly believe that they're a sinner. They may say it, but they don't live like it. Deep down, they think they got what it takes. Deep down, what does your heart say? They don't, they don't, most, most people don't look to Jesus and say, they, they want to say, no, 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 no. I'll look to myself. I can do this on my own. I can memorize scripture. I can do all the good deeds. I can go to church. I, you know, if I sin, I'll just give it some time. Then God will be, will be good after a while. After my conscience gets a little more seared, I'll be okay because I won't feel the pain anymore, right? That's where we, tr- we trick ourselves there. No, I'll look to my religion. I'll, I'll, I'll pull myself up by, my, out of my own problems. I, I got what it takes. And I want to tell you this morning, John 3 tells you that you don't have what it takes without being born again. You have to be new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, anyone who's in Christ is a what? A new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Amen. New. A lot of us are, are still living with the old wineskins that Jesus talks about. The, the new wine goes in and it breaks the old wineskins all to pieces. You need new wineskin. You need new, a new spirit. A lot of you are like, what are you talking about? Same old Nicodemus. He didn't know what he was talking about either. You've got to know, understand these things. There's a transformation that happens. Let's read John 3, 16 one more time. It says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave. That word gave right there, circle it. He gave to die is what that should say. He gave to die. God gave to die his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would look up to him, would look to him, would be saved, would not perish, but have eternal life. And if you just look to Jesus with faith, if you place your trust in him by faith, rest the weight of your life on him, sit in this chair, rest in this chair, rest on him, you'll be saved from death and you'll know that just just like the serpent, Jesus was raised up on a cross. You see the similarities? Jesus was raised up on a cross and took the punishment for your sin and for my sin. A lot of you have heard that so many times it doesn't have an effect on us anymore. So to close, I just want to give you three quick questions, three quick points, very fast, that I want you to wrestle with. I want you to wrestle with these this week, man. The first question is, is my faith real? Is your faith real or is it just being because you go to church your whole life, your mom or dad told you to, your grandma raised you in church, or whatever it may be. Is my faith real? I'm not talking about a general belief. I believe the chair will hold me up. It looks nice. It's, got a, it's sturdy. I don't mean a general belief in the existence of God, not a get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to raise my hand. I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to follow Jesus by doing all these things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking, have you come to Jesus, looked to him, seen him for who he is, and your life was put on a different track because of it. Remember James 2, 19? Even the demons believe and they tremble. The problem with a lot of Christians is we believe, but we don't tremble in the presence of God because we don't have fear of him. I don't mean you're scared of him. I just mean there's an awe and wonder of who he is. Have you truly seen who he is? I'm asking, is, the, is Jesus the Lord of your life or are you still the Lord of your life? The only way that you can be saved is for you to step off the throne and give Jesus his rightful place in your heart. That's the only way. So the first question, is your faith real? The second question is, 
Have you been born again? Have you been born again? I feel like my Baptist pastor asked me that question a thousand times. Have you been born again? No, I'm sorry, but this is, this is a good question to ask for John 3. Have you been born again? Have you ever understood that it is impossible to see the kingdom of God without being born again? Like the wind affects the things it touches, the Holy Spirit changes you. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Anyone in Christ is a new creation. Are you a new creation? Can you remember a time when you weren't new and now you are new? Can you remember those two things? And the last question I have for you is have you rested the entire weight of your life on Jesus? A lot of us in here have grown up in a culture that teaches us to be saved kind of like this. Just be like, uh, uh, just kind of sit on just a little bit, right? Just a little bit of surrender, right? Just a little bit. Resting my entire weight on Jesus is literally, God, thank you for taking the weight off of my, my sin, Lord. It was too heavy for me to bear. Now I'm free. I'm sitting in this seat. I'm free to do what he's called me to do. I'm free to be who he's called me to be. I'm free to obey. I'm not free to do what I want to do. I'm free to obey. I'm now a slave, a doulos, a slave of Christ means I'm not using my freedom to sin like it talks about in the epistles. It means I'm using my freedom to live a life of freedom and give my life for him. It means I'm married to the church. We're brothers and sisters, sacred siblings, Matthew 12. It means I'm resting my weight on him. Are you still trying to carry it? Are you still trying to carry it? It says everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Remember Nathaniel last week? For those of you that were here, Nathaniel, he said, Rabbi, when he saw Jesus for who, and this guy was a skeptic. He was like, man, whatever. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> whatever. Then Philip introduces Nathaniel to Jesus, and Jesus tells him something that only he would know. And Nathaniel's like, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. I'll go where you say go, and I'll do what you say do. That means my agenda, my goals, my dreams, my aspirations are put on the back burner, and my, my pleasing you and submitting to you and surrendering to you has come first and foremost. If we, had a, if we had a movement of people that lived that way, you would see your community radically changed. You would see a movement of the Holy Spirit like your brain cannot comprehend. And I want to be a part of something like that. Do you? The thing is, 99.999% percentage of Christians would say, yes, I do want to see that. But a very, very, very smaller percentage would say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to see that happen. Are you willing to give up your goals and dreams and ideas for his? Are you willing to be born again and truly walk and live like you're being born again? Or have you come to Jesus to say, I'll go where you say go as long as it's not here. And I'll do whatever you say do as long as it's not that. Anybody ever done that? I, I'll, go, I'll go wherever you say go as long as you don't send me to Asia to be a missionary. I don't want to do that. I'll do whatever you say do as long as it's in my comfort zone. As long as you don't come in to preach, I ain't doing that. As long as you don't come in to be a teacher, I'm not doing that. It's just not my gift. Jesus is like, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the gift giver, bro. I'm calling you to it. Go do it. If you're here today and you look at your life and you can admit, you know, hey, I'm not really a disciple. Look at your life. 
only you and Jesus know. I, I'm not really a disciple. I can't really say I'm following Jesus. I can't really say that he occupies the throne of my life. Uh, he, he hasn't saved me from my sin because I haven't asked him to, to do that personally yet. That's you. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to, to make a decision. This is the biggest decision of your life is to follow Jesus. It's an eternal decision. Your life is counting down minutes. You're closer to death's doorstep now than when you walked in this room. There is an urgent plea that Jesus is making to Nicodemus. I don't want to hear your compliments. I don't want to hear your, I don't want to hear all these pleasantries that you're trying to give me. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven, Nicodemus. And if you are born again, you're going to live a lifestyle that's for me and for my mission. And that's going to carry over into eternity. And you're going to live with me in peace and in, in, in understanding and wisdom for the rest of your existence, which is eternal. A million years will just be getting started. But those who turn away, those who aren't born again, those who say no, will live an eternity apart from Jesus in hell. I don't want to see anybody in this room fall into that number. And the problem is, because you've heard that come out of my mouth just now, you're now accountable for that. I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of you may have just walked away from Jesus. Maybe you're saved, but you remember there was a time that something special was happening. God was moving, but my finances went out the door. My marriage went to, out the door. My, my job went out the door. I, I just stopped reading my Bible. I just stopped spending time in his presence. I just started checking the box of a reading plan or a prayer time or a church attendance. You know, I didn't, you don't know what went wrong, but maybe you're just not walking with him now and you need to come back and let him love you. And that's the problem. That's the problem. That's why we won't look at that serpent. That's why we won't look at Jesus because we don't believe we are worthy to be loved. Can I tell you something? That's what makes the gospel so good is because you're not, and he does. That's what's awesome. I know me. I know I don't deserve his love. You know you, but Jesus loves you. If you're here this morning, let's just, let's just bow our heads. We're going to pray in just a moment. But if you're here this morning, you know, hey, man, I, I've walked away from God. I've done my own thing. Or, hey, I'm not a disciple. I've been, I've been trying to fake it, and I'm tired. Hey, I... I've been in church my whole life, and I thought I was, but when I listen to these sermons and I hear the gospel, it makes me question who I am and what I'm doing. I, you know, Michael, I, I, you know, when I read the Bible, or I don't, I don't even read the Bible, but when you're talking, I'm realizing that what you're saying doesn't line up with my life. And what you're saying about God having a throne in my heart, he doesn't have that. If that's you this morning, and maybe God has been working on your heart this morning, showing you, hey, you have not surrendered your life to me. You have not submitted your life to me. You have not turned your life over to me. You're still living in sin. You're still living for yourself. You're still living for today and tomorrow and not eternity. If that's you this morning, and God's working in your heart, saying, hey, today's the day. You need to be saved. With every head bowed, every eye closed, let's just, let's just do something really bold. I don't want you to lift your hand and say, Michael, that's me. I know today I need Jesus. I know today I need to turn my life over to him because I haven't done that. Is that anybody in this room?
pray, God, that you would just continue to move in this congregation and bring us to decision, bring us to response, God. We know that the gospel requires a response. We know that you require a response. So, God, we love and we praise you and we ask all this in Jesus' name.